Welcome to the Beyond Numbers, COVID-19 and Society podcast. We are partners from the COVID Inform Horizon 2020 project, which looks at the COVID-19 pandemic through an intersectional lens. The past two years have flipped our lives upside down. The effects of the COVID-19 pandemic go far beyond physical health. COVID-19 has changed our everyday life, how we work and how we interact with other people. It has also challenged our well-being and mental health. But did it affect everyone the same? It is clear that the pandemic also uncovered and deepened the already existing inequalities in our society. This podcast is dedicated to examining those inequalities and the impact that different measures have on different groups, which is also the aim of the GovInform project. The project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. To learn more about the project, you can visit our website at www.govinform.eu or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. Dear all, welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Beyond Numbers, COVID-19 and Society. My name is Svetlana and I will be your host for this and all the future episodes. The topic of today's episode is intersectionality and vulnerability. I have the pleasure to welcome my two colleagues, Dr. Victoria Adler, who is a researcher and project manager at Cineo, and Neil Molinar, who works as a researcher at the University of Antwerp. Victoria holds a PhD degree in anthropology and focuses on topics such as intersectionality, gender, social inequality, and migration. Yil holds a master's in global health and is very interested in studying the social determinants of health, especially relating to reproductive and maternal health. Welcome both. Thank you, Svetlana. Thanks, Svetlana. Lovely being here. (laughs) Thank you both so much for agreeing to record this podcast with me. Well, the concept of intersectionality is essential to what we are going to discuss today. And it is also a fundamental framework on which the GovInform project operates. Some of our listeners may be familiar with this concept, but could you please explain the theoretical framing of intersectionality and where it came from? So um, intersectionality is a theoretical framework uh, which has its roots in the 1970s black feminist movement. Um, And the term intersectionality was particularly coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in her article, Mapping the Margins, Intersectionality, Identity Politics and Violence Against Women of Color, which she published in 1991. However, many, many bright people and activists um, really shaped the idea of intersectionality. It's important to mention this here. Um, in her article, Crenshaw raises issues on the specific interaction of race and gender um, in the case of violence against women of color. And she argues that categories of difference Um, or identity categories or um, access of oppression, whatever you want to call race and gender as positions within the social structure and um, identities, um, that race and gender are mutually constitutive and cannot be sufficiently understood when thought of as additive. And that really means that the experience of people who are affected by multiple forms of oppression cannot adequately be understood if we think about them as separate things as experiencing racism on the one hand and experiencing experiencing sexism at, at the other hand. 
these two forms of discrimination interact with each other and create a very unique and different experience that shapes the life of, of people affected by that. So the racism that a black woman is experiencing is different to the racism a black man is experiencing. And this is the core of the concept. So the simultaneous experience of discrimination or oppression. And if you can think about it as having a life on its own, basically. And we can see that particularly also in stereotypes that white women and black women are faced with. Black women are often highly sexualized, particularly compared to white women and white women traditionally were more portrayed as, as the holder of culture and nurturing mothers of society who carry the nation on, on their shoulders. So we, we can really see how women of color in the imagination of people are very much affected by racism as well. And this was really relevant, or this became even more relevant in, as I said at the beginning in the feminist movement, because black women felt that their experiences were completely silent in the feminist movement led by white women. And this also explains very much where, where, why we talk about the black feminist movement compared to the white feminist movement, because many of the issues that black women were continuously faced by on a daily basis, not really a topic for white women. For example, access to labor market, which was a really big theme for white middle class women, and they really wanted to go into the labor market. And they fought for, for accessing that. That was not a, a theme for Black women. Black women always had to work um, forcefully during slavery after that because of the precarious income situation of their family or being single mothers. So it was not the, the problem they were faced by were precarious labor conditions rather than not having access to the labor market. This, a second discussion would come to mind was the one about abortion, where white women, for them, the idea of having rights over their own body was a right to terminate a pregnancy, whereas a right for a black woman um, or women of color, based on the experiences with forced sterilization, was to have decisions about keeping a child, for example. So these are two very common um, examples where we can really see how um, intersectionality was shaped in a, a political movement as well. However much time has passed, and the theoretical framework of intersectionality since then has been applied in many contexts and fields of studies. And studies now often do not only look at race and gender, they, and also where the focus of in the beginning was more of understanding the interaction of various axes of oppression, particularly race, sexism, racism. Now intersectionality also tries to understand how privileged identity positions intersect with oppressed identity positions, such as being a woman and being a white woman. So now research really wants to understand how within a person's identity, more elements of oppression and privilege interact with each other and shape their experience. And as I said before, like intersectionally nowadays includes many categories of differences, such as age, ethnicity, able-bodiedness, class, socioeconomic status. So things have moved a bit forward, but it's really important to keep in mind where intersectionality is coming from and was what the most pressing issue here was an acknowledgement of the experience of people faced by sexism and racism. Thank you so much for such a comprehensive introduction to intersectionality. Well, as I mentioned earlier, intersectionality is one of the key concepts we are going to focus on in today's episode. Before we dive into further discussion, I would like to know or talk a bit more about intersectionality and COVID-19. 
Well, you mentioned that intersectionality really started by examining a difference, you know, axis of oppression when it comes to gender and race. But you also mentioned that the concept is now taking in consideration more complex, you know, situations, which I think COVID-19 definitely is. So my question is, in what ways is intersectionality relevant to what we are experiencing during the COVID-19 pandemic? Okay, so let's think back of March 2020, when it slowly dawned on all of us that COVID-19 is a thing and we'll stay here and we will be in lockdown for a while. I guess both of you remember very well how that situation felt. And and I personally remember that pretty soon after we, we went into first lockdown, there were first voices from women shelters and civil society organizations fighting, protecting, working for domestic violence victims that said something is wrong. They don't hear anything anymore at all from women. And pretty soon it, it became clear that that was not because domestic funds decreased. It was because victims were locked in with the perpetrator for months on a time and they didn't have access to reach uh, to services. So here we see that lockdowns, which were meant to protect people really on a broad scale from the virus, meant for some, particularly women and children, that these lockdowns put them in greater risk of domestic violence um, and experiences of violence. So here we see that a measure, public health measure that is really meant to protect all of us had very negative consequences for some groups based on pre-existing inequalities, which were always there already prior to COVID-19, but really increased risk due to so-called protective measures. And another example, women are doing most of the care work. We always knew that but it became incredibly visible during the COVID-19 pandemic and the lockdowns, particularly at times when school were closed and home office orders were extended. We've seen that many women dropped out of paid work so that they could take on more of unpaid care work. And this will have long-term consequences for their careers. And as we now know, also on mental health. And this was mostly really carried by women. Another example was more on the health vulnerability side. Are the clusters of COVID infections during the first or second wave? I'm not sure now in meat production environments. I think we definitely had them in Austria and Germany. And I think they were in many countries. So here we saw massive clusters of precariously work, often migrant workers getting infected by COVID-19 due to the housing situation they were put in. So these were workers who were, were fought, like, lived together in, in containers, really, and mass housing for workers, not having enough private space in overcrowded conditions, not being able to go home or to isolate. And here we really see how class or low socioeconomic status clearly had a negative impact on the capability of people to protect themselves. And yeah, as I said, reasons for that was low uh, income, necessity to stick to the job, precarious working and living conditions, and in general, an attitude of being able to exploit migrant workers. So, so yeah, I think this shows us a little bit how different people are differently affected by COVID-19 and also by measures installed to protect them based on identity categories. I think we really established that the pandemic doesn't affect everyone the same. Well, COVID-19 has uncovered many social inequalities and outcomes of those inequalities, as you outlined. I'm also curious to see how the theory of intersectionality can help us to better understand those underlying inequalities. Yil, over to you. Uh, Yeah, so 
I would say that the theory of intersectionality can help us sort of see some bigger trends, the bigger pictures in the examples Victoria just mentioned. So essentially an intersectional analytical approach allows you to understand how experiences of disadvantage are shaped by an interaction of different social factors, right? And so that may include things like gender, ethnicity, class, age, religion, migration status. And this is really relevant in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, as Victoria's example showed, because many people face different types of inequalities and disadvantage at the same time. So, for example, an, an elderly immigrant woman living with disability may be disadvantaged in the context of the pandemic in several different ways. Discrimination or oppression related to different aspects of her identity can interact and, and even worsen each other. So, for, for example, she might struggle to gain access to information about the pandemic since she's older and perhaps she's less digitally literate than younger people. And this might be made worse by the fact that she's living with disability and she has limited mobility. And, and maybe she also faces language barriers because of her migration background. So it's clear that different types of disadvantage and discrimination can combine and, and reinforce each other in, in this scenario. And together, they, they shape the way this woman would experience crisis communication about the COVID pandemic, for example. And yeah, so I would say that in the context of the pandemic, an intersectional lens helps us move away from thinking just about clearly identifiable groups or about single risk factors. It prevents us from just looking at this woman as an immigrant or, or just as a person living with disability. And instead, it encourages us to take a more holistic approach and consider different aspects of our identity at the same time. So really, intersectionality theory sort of forces us to take into account a range of inequalities and disadvantages that determine how the impact of the pandemic is experienced by communities or, or individuals. And, and that's really important because most people do belong to more than one social group, right? Or, or they have more than one finding characteristic that shapes their experiences. And so an intersectionality approach provides us with sort of that, that mindset and also the language to look at how an individual may experience the pandemic differently, depending on their gender, their ethnicity, their occupation, as well as other social characteristics. I think that in the future episodes, you can look forward to a more in-depth discussion about some of those inequalities. But for now, let's circle back to the topics of today's episodes. As I mentioned earlier, another essential concept that is applied with it within the COVID form project is vulnerability. Could you please also introduce this concept to our listeners? Uh, sure, <laughs> I can give it a go. Well, vulnerability is not a concept that is very easy to define, even though it's very commonly used both in, in public discourse and everyday life, but also in academia. Let me just start by turning the question around. <laughs> what do you think being vulnerable means, Svetlana? If you, if you call someone vulnerable, what, what would you mean by that? <laughs> you got me. I think that I would personally define vulnerability as being exposed to danger. This can be either physical danger or, you know, mental harm. I'm not sure. Go ahead, please. You are, you are the expert. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm the expert, but no, it's interesting what you're saying. So I think if I understand correctly, you're, you're sort of interpreting the word 
vulnerability more in the sense of being vulnerable to something, right? Like vulnerable to something bad happening to you, to to an exposure that might have an harmful outcome. And I, I think a lot of people would have a, a very similar idea, really. But we're also seeing quite a lot, both in, in popular discourse and also in, in policy and in, in politics, is that vulnerability is also often used as a sort of standalone label for individuals or groups of people. So instead of using vulnerability in a relational sense, like what, what you were saying, basically, like being vulnerable to something, it happens quite a lot that groups of people are, are just called vulnerable groups uh, without specifying what exactly they're vulnerable to. And that's something we're trying to avoid a little bit in the COVID form project. But let me take a step back first and, and talk about sort of different academic definitions of, of vulnerability. So one approach to understanding vulnerability relates to this idea of universal vulnerability. So there have been many different scholars who argue that being vulnerable is, is basically a key characteristic of being human, that it is an inevitable part of, of the human condition. And so they would argue that everybody is basically always vulnerable, uh, both in a biological sense, so because of the fact that we, we have this body that can be damaged or, or get sick, and also as a result of social, economic, or cultural circumstances. Well, and I think most people would agree that we are all vulnerable in one way or another, but at least in my opinion, I would say the concept of vulnerability also uses its usefulness a little bit. If we just say everybody or everyone is vulnerable, right? Because I also think it's clear that there are differences in the ways and, and the extent to which different people are vulnerable to things like illness, to discrimination, to poverty, etc. And so personally, the definition I prefer is to define vulnerability as both a condition and a process. <laughs> and I, I know that sounds a little bit vague, but with that, I mean that we look both at the structural conditions that shape people's lives that might be quite static and not change so much, as well as dynamic changes that that influence them. And so I think it's useful to think about this process of, of vulnerabilization to have three main sort of stages or, or parts. And so first of all, we could consider individuals or, or groups initial conditions or circumstances. So things like a person's general health, health status, where they live, uh, what kind of income they have, those sorts of things. Then second, we should consider people's exposure to to individual or collective risks or, or shocks that can affect their well-being. So when we think about exposure to COVID-19 infection, for example, this might be influenced heavily by the kind of job you do. But of course, there are many other factors to consider in relation to exposure as well. And then thirdly, we should consider people's capacity to cope with risks and the consequences of these of these these risks. So you should look at whether people are able to adapt or or adjust their their lifestyle or their behaviors to these dynamic risks. And for some people that might be much easier than for others, right? Like for example in a covid context for me it is relatively easy to reduce my risk of getting covid by working from home for example because of the type of job I do. But for many other people who have jobs that cannot be done just from behind the computer, that's not an option, of course. And yeah, I, I, I think these, these three parts of the process combined help us think about how people may face vulnerabilization to different extents. 
and in different ways. And especially in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, I, I think this approach makes a lot of sense because this pandemic is sort of the, the perfect example of shock or, or a disruption that affects people in different ways and which different people also have a variable capacity to cope with or to respond to. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. Yes, thank you so much. I think it's definitely interesting um, what you were saying about how people react and adapt different to different situations. I think it was really apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, because some people were really, you know, well, I'm fine, you know, I will just watch Netflix. And some people were really anxious about different measures and this has changed over time. So um, definitely really interesting. Thank you for explaining the, well, not concept of vulnerability. In Govan form, the research focuses on how various vulnerabilities intersect in the context of COVID-19 pandemic. And you also talked a little bit about this, but I'm interested to see, and if you could elaborate on this, that would be great, how intersectionality and vulnerability are brought together in the Covinform project. So the basic idea here is very simple, and please you jump in whenever I forget an important point. Before we talked about access of oppression or discrimination or identity categories. In Covinform, we basically say, there are certain identities that are greater risk of suffering from negative consequences of COVID-19, socially and also health-wise. We also assume that risk is constructed and so are social inequalities. For example, you could easily fix the gender pay gap if governments really want to. It's not that complicated. And for example, the issue of the meat production cluster that we talked about earlier also could easily be fixed and avoided if there would be an interest in fixing precarious living conditions and provide fair pay and accommodation for migrant workers. So it's not an inherent natural risk that is given in that way. It is socially constructed. Policies are often drafted with a particular population in mind, and those are often those that are closer to power than others. This means that those who are the others and their life circumstances are often less considered in policies and in measures relating to COVID-19, which then again deepens or perpetuates social inequality. For example, people without fixed work, it's very hard for them to go and isolate if they're like a contact person, for example, because it would mean that they lose their job because they didn't show up because um, there's no regulation for what happens when they're sick or they don't get any money and get paid. So the, these are things that, that governments really needed to catch up with because they, the initial policy, uh, the initial orders to for lockdown and, and virus containment often didn't think of, of, of these details, so to say. So coming back to the topic, and also as Yield already pointed out, there is this idea of vulnerabilization. So there are structural conditions that shape people's life, which really shows that vulnerability is a process. And for example, the structural disadvantage of women in society shapes women's capability to cope with risk. So that means women who carry most of care work are more exposed to risk because they more likely needing to take care of other family members, even during a pandemic, have to go home, visit them, be in very close contact to them. Similarly, they often have front jobs called frontline worker jobs, which are often jobs that, that you can't do from home. And you have to be there and you're exposed to many, many people. And this is why we use intersectionality, because we sort of put together this idea of multiple simultaneous influence of multiple identities which 
are often connected to identity categories or axes of oppression. And this is why we use intersectionality, because it really helps us to understand the impact of COVID-19 and related measures on vulnerable groups by focusing on the structural and identity position. And people are complex and intersectionality really allows us, and Neil already pointed it out, to investigate and understand these complexities in people's lives, because we don't have to just focus on, for example, being a woman or being a migrant. Intersectionality allows us to bring all of these things in at the same time and see how they work together. Yes, I completely agree. I think that complex situations require complex solutions, you know. But Yil, you have written a report about the intersectionality and unequal impact of COVID-19. How would you say that the COVID-19 measures interacted with existing systems of inequality? And maybe could you give some examples so we can better understand the, the complex situations that arose from the pandemic? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think it's helpful to discuss that in relation to sort of well, different types of impact in different domains of life, so to say. So one domain where COVID-19 measures were really differently felt by different people was in relation to work and care responsibilities, as Victoria has highlighted as well. So key response measures in this pandemic have, of course, included things like remote learning for children and young people, closure of childcare facilities, and work from home recommendations. And we know that at an EU level, the negative impact of these types of COVID-19 measures on work-life balance has been felt most strongly by women, uh, particularly women with young children. Uh, we've seen that in many families, traditional role divisions have sort of been reinforced with women being much more likely to have been forced to, to sacrifice paid work in order to compensate for the loss of childcare during lockdowns. And data from Switzerland, for example, has, has shown that these gendered rule divisions have also led to more stress and, and mental health complaints uh, for women compared to men during these lockdowns. Now, what I've just described is mainly a gender difference in terms of impact, right? But an, an intersectional lens allows us to notice that some women have fewer resources to allow them to cope with increased care burdens. For example, women who have more caring responsibilities because maybe they have a, a larger family or, or they also have elderly parents to take care of, or women who have uh, less support to, to help with, with these care burdens. For example, single mothers who have to do things alone or in general, women with a smaller support network. Or also women with lower savings, for example, who, who really might not be able to, to just take time off or, or work fewer hours because they need the money. And we know that racialized women, single mothers and, and women with disabilities are, are definitely among the groups who have been disproportionately hit uh, by these sorts of measures. And because professional and care structures are so gendered, the economic impact of the COVID-19 crisis has also played out differently along intersections of, of profession and gender. So, for example, the pandemic has led to jobs being lost in many professions that are quite women-dominated. So, for example, among hairdressers, flight attendants, uh, also among workers in restaurants and shops. And And so the economic impact of the pandemic has also been, well, more felt by, by many women. And this has been particularly significant for women that work in the informal sector as well. So, for example, women working in informal cleaning services, for example, uh, compared to women that, that work in formal sector work. 
Well, and, and this disadvantage at the intersection of profession and gender is often combined with having a migrant background or, or belonging to an ethnic or racial minority group in society as well, because some ethnic or racial minority groups or, or migrant groups are overrepresented in specific professions. <laughs> we knew this prior to the pandemic already, of course, because, for example, women of color and, and women with fewer years of education are often overrepresented in the most precarious frontline positions, so frontline healthcare jobs or home care jobs, for example. So, yeah, that's just some examples relating to work and care responsibilities. And you can extend the same kind of analysis to, for example, digitalization. So, in the pandemic context, services and vital systems have often been forced to use virtual platforms and solutions instead, which not everyone is equipped or comfortable to, to use. Or you can extend this kind of analysis to discrimination and policing, because we know, for example, that the enforcement of, of lockdown rules has often been quite discriminatory. And these types of experiences can, can often only really be understood by considering uh, not just the role of race and ethnicity, for example, but, but look at the same time at things like gender, class and religion. Thank you, Yale. Very comprehensive example. And to our listeners, in case you are interested in this report, you can find it at www.covenform.eu under the section resources, project outputs, and in the bi-monthly reports category. So up until now, we've mainly talked about inequalities and intersectional disadvantages in relation to the broader societal consequences of the pandemic, which means lockdowns, economic impact or communication issues. But of course, there are also differences in the risks people face to get seriously ill or to die from COVID-19. Can we also use intersectionality to understand these differences too? Um, yeah, I would say we definitely can. Uh, within the COVID-inform project, our analysis also looks at how intersectional disadvantage can create health vulnerabilities uh, for COVID-19. So already very early on in the pandemic, we noticed that some people are much higher risk of becoming very ill or dying from COVID as a result of their, their pre-existing health status. Across countries, COVID-19 death rates are typically higher among men, for example, and, and death rates are also unequally distributed by age. So the general trend is that older people are more likely to die from COVID, of course. But apart from the elderly, clinically vulnerable groups are often also considered to include people with type 2 diabetes, people with severe chronic cardiovascular, lung or kidney disease, and also people that have a lower immunity or, or are undergoing cancer treatment, for example. But of course, individuals' age and health status cannot really be separated from other aspects of their identity or the circumstances in which they're living. So it's really important to acknowledge that being at higher risk from severe COVID-19 disease based on physical health status is also very much linked with structural health inequalities. And in the case of COVID, what's particularly relevant is the existing inequalities in the distribution of chronic diseases. So things like diabetes, heart disease, because these pose important risk factors for getting a very severe COVID-19 infection or, or dying. And we know that across Europe and across the world, really, people in, in the lowest income group are much more likely to have a chronic illness than people with uh, the highest incomes. And Although we don't actually have very good data on ethnic variations in chronic disease rates in Europe, it does seem like rates of chronic diseases are also higher among some ethnic minority groups. And so sadly, but, but unsurprisingly, really data from, from countries like the US and the UK has, 
has shown that individuals that belong to a migrant or ethnic minority group are really facing uh, much higher levels of severe COVID-19 illness and mortality as well. And I think that using this intersectionality thinking helps highlight that these types of differences in, in rates of severe COVID-19 illness and mortality are not natural. They're not just a given outcome. Instead, they're they're the outcome of power structures, of societal processes, the way we, we organize things in our societies that shape the social determinants of health. And so intersectionality theory sort of reminds us that the unequal health impacts of COVID-19 are, are avoidable and, and therefore unjust as well. And finally, I would say that a focus on intersectionality also highlights how people who are disadvantaged in terms of their health status may actually face many different drivers of disadvantage at the same time. So for example, through a combination of having a low income while also having a chronic illness and experiencing discriminatory treatment in a healthcare system, all of these separate but related issues will contribute to how an individual experiences the pandemic and also their risk of getting very sick or, or even dying from COVID. Thank you. Um, this is really, really interesting. And I have one additional question for you. As you were talking, I, I've noticed that you said that men are more likely to, to die from COVID-19. And I was wondering, do you know why is that? What are the factors that are you know, influencing this? Is their behavior more risky? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm not an expert on this. And I also think actually the truth, well, the jury isn't really out on this, but there's different factors that could play a role. There there might be things like that certain risk factors for getting severe COVID disease are just more prevalent among men. So things like smoking, for example, in most countries, more men smoke than women. And so things like this could play a role. In general, we see for many diseases that incidence rates and mortality rates do differ between men and women. And there's probably also differences in the way immune systems work, basically, between men and women, which is not very well understood as far as I know. But it's probably a combination of different things. And well, and then there's exposure as well, of course. You, you could expect that because men and women lead different lives in some cases. For example, in terms of the work they do, there might be differences in exposure. But I think the case for COVID might not be so strong with that one, especially because, you know, like with these lockdown measures, I'm not sure there would be such a significant difference uh, in terms of exposure in that sense. But yeah, interesting question. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Unfortunately, our time together is coming to an end. So this is going to be my last question for you. Since our next episode is going to focus on the role of communication during the COVID-19 pandemic and also uh, on public health campaigns. My last question for you is, how do these concepts we talked about, intersectionality and vulnerability, impact communication? And I know we are going to discuss this in more depth in the future episode, but I'm curious to know your opinion. And also I'm curious to know how can we leverage those insights in risk communication in particular. Sure. So um, maybe then rather diving deep into this topic, I'll just give you an example of something that we've been discussing it quite a bit and because we could see it in the data that we collected so far. So basically, communication-related factors can increase individual vulnerability, particularly in a crisis situation, because communication is so crucial to the management of a crisis. As we know, it's communication that raises awareness, encourages protective activities, and trigger often uncomfortable behavioral change. 
So really everything that we have done and still doing to protect ourselves from COVID-19, we did because somebody crisis communicated this to us. But different groups of people need different forms of communication and different information. And this is what this comes down to. And this is where intersection plays a big role as well to understand this. Different communities based on often in the case of what we are seeing at the moment, it's minority groups from migrant groups to groups that traditionally have been discriminated, excluded from governments, have very low trust in government and consume information differently than, than other groups. So really everything that we have done to protect ourselves from COVID-19, we did do because of crisis communication. But different groups of people need different forms of communication as well as different types of information to be able to protect themselves. For example, some people cannot be reached through the internet due to their age of resources. They don't have access to internet. This is also an issue in rural communities or remote communities more than rural communities. Though different social groups have different norms around how to seek information and whom to trust. Some groups rely on TV or radio, so press conferences were a really good way of reaching those people. Others newspapers and again, other social media. Then there are language barriers. When all these factors negatively impact the extent to which communication is received and understood, considered trustworthy, which is really important, or we really see the impact of that during the pandemic now and can be acted upon if this can then result in communication vulnerability. In the context of COVID-19, we're currently really seeing that uh, in relation to vaccination. And we see that groups that don't trust the government, particularly because of historical exclusion and racism, which is still ongoing structural disadvantage, which we often see with minority groups, but also migrant groups. Yeah, they have very low trust in governments. So government crisis communication may not be the best way of reaching them. You need a much stronger community engagement and involvement to reach those groups. You really need to trust, to cooperate with trusted communities members to level out the missing trust that they have to governments, for example. So we could really see that much of the information provided did not really reach specific target groups. And again, this is not only an issue in relation to language. Very often, and we've seen that that really basically was barely addressed in, in COVID-19 responses, it comes down to very different perceptions of risk. So various groups perceive risk very differently. And risk is also something that is, is common in, as a society, we, we, we negotiate these risks. And so and, and, and subgroups of our society engage with risk in very various forms. And to be able to get those people on board, first of all, governments need to understand what is the risk for them? What are they scared of? And why are they skeptical? So as long as we don't know that, we keep on giving them the same information that already didn't prove itself to work. So there, there really needs to be a little bit of a shift of understanding. And I guess that's also really intersectionality to understand the lift of experience of people, to understand what are their concerns? How do, how do they understand the world? What is your position to something? And then really based on that, trying to find communication and address their worries. So it is really important to have a coherent communication strategy, but also it is important to, to address specific audiences accordingly. A one-size-fits-all approach does not work in crisis communication. Well, thank you for a um, really great answer. I'm really looking forward to discuss this matter in the next episodes. 
And Yale, Victoria, thank you so much for such an inspiring and overwhelming, well, in a good way, of course, discussion. It's been a real pleasure uh, having you as guests of the first episode of Beyond Numbers, COVID-19 and Society podcast. To our listeners, thank you for spending the time of your day with us. I hope you can join us for the next episode, which will be released next month. Enjoy the rest of your day and stay safe. Thank you, Sabsana. Thank you so much.